This is the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Ron Ambrose stepping down as interim leader of the Federal Conservative Party. Uh, obviously, the stint coming up as uh, the leadership race uh, for the Federal Conservatives happens May 27th. So, obviously, the uh, the gig was temporary anyway, uh, but some were surprised to hear her uh, step down out of politics. Will she be back? Where is she going? More on this. Here's a clip from her uh, when she was announcing all of this this morning. Canadians asked us to change our tone, and we listened, and we changed our tone. We emerged quickly. We hit the ground running, determined to be the voice of the taxpayer, and we succeeded. We are the voice of everyday working people and their families. There you have it, uh, Rana Ambrose uh, speaking uh, this morning in regard to stepping down away from politics. Let's bring, uh, let's bring in Pierre Martel, part-time professor, political studies, University of Ottawa, and is with us now. Uh, hello, Pierre. How are you today? Well, I'm fine. Thank you. Thank you very much for taking the time to join us. We appreciate this. Uh, we all knew this position was temporary from Rana Ambrose, uh, Ambrose, but are you surprised she's stepping away from politics? Well, I think uh, the rumor was out, you know, for uh, a few months that uh, she uh, she would leave uh, her post as the, the interim leader. Obviously, when a new leader is elected for the uh, the, the Conservative Party, but I, I suppose this is the fate, you know, of interim uh, leaders. Uh, they're supposed to to hold together the caucus and. Um, their job is to, to, in this case, you know, to, to form, you know, a credible uh, opposition uh, to the ruling party. And uh, when a new leader is uh, announced, uh, usually, you know, the uh, interim leader fades away and leaves uh, politics. Uh, I think uh, she's uh, following in that uh, transition. So it's sad to see, you know, uh, such a... Um, a, a an experienced politician leaving leaving office, uh, but I think you know she's been uh, in federal politics uh, for 13 years now. She was elected in 2004, and uh, I think uh, it's a long time in, in federal politics, you know, to be uh, in the limelight uh, for a number of years. And I think uh, that's uh, not a surprise, but uh, I think I would have liked. Personally, that uh, she stayed, you know, with the, uh, the Conservative Party. I think uh, she was uh, a decent woman, uh, a moderate uh, politician in her views, uh, someone who was uh, always looking, you know, for the public interest and trying you know, to move all the the interested uh, parties to common grounds. Uh, many have echoed what you've just said. Um, should she have run for leader of this party? Well, usually the interim leader is uh, supposed to be to be neutral, mm-hmm. and uh, many of the rules. Uh, this is not just the case for the Conservative Party, but I think for other federal uh, parties, uh, the interim leader is uh, supposed to be to be neutral. When she accepted to be the interim leader, I think uh, she knew very well, you know, that it would be difficult for her to run. But I would uh, like myself, you know, perhaps she should have. Um, Step down as the interim leader, or not accepted uh, the the position, and she should have run. I think she would have been a very credible and very solid candidate. Do you think the fact that she? Do you think we're saying that now because we've seen her performance as interim leader? Would we have said the same thing if she had just jumped into the race like the rest of them? Well, I think she she certainly uh, demonstrated, you know, uh, statemanship, uh, you know, in that uh, position. Um, 
we have to go back and put everything in context. You know, she, she held a number of portfolios in uh, Stephen Harper's uh, cabinet. Uh, but Mr. Harper's uh, style of governing was really uh, a command and control. And I think she displayed, you know, uh, loyalty to her leader. She was a team leader, uh, a team uh, uh, member of parliament as well. Uh, so it was at times difficult for her to really shine uh, away, you know, from the orthodoxy of uh, Stephen Harper's uh, uh, plan. So going back two years ago, I think uh, she was she was a, a credible choice, you know, to be the interim leader. But uh, she grew in, in the job. She certainly demonstrated, you know, her ability to hold the caucus together. Um, it was difficult also. She was not really aggressive, but she defended really the core values of the Conservative Party. And uh, I think uh, we all have to respect, you know, that uh, she was a very credible uh, uh, leader of the opposition. So it, in hindsight, uh, perhaps uh, we could say, you know, she should have run. Uh, but unfortunately, uh, <laughs> this is not the case. And I think uh, I echo, you know, many people in saying that uh, uh, federal political life, you know, is losing a, a very uh, sincere and very credible uh, member. Will she return, do you think? It's hard to say, you know, we, uh, <laughs> someone who predicts the future is someone who makes a prediction, uh, a prediction yesterday uh, for today and tomorrow would explain you know, why the prediction was wrong. Hmm. Uh, it's hard to say, you know, she's still young. Uh, I think she probably uh, would keep an interest in, in political life, whether it is provincial or municipal or federal politics. Uh, I would say, in my case, given her experience, uh, she would still be interested in what's going on at the federal level. Uh, but who knows? You know, at this point in time, uh, a new leader will take over uh, the direction of the Conservative Party. We will also have a new NDP leader uh, elected uh, this year. Uh, right now, despite uh, the fact that uh, Mr. Trudeau, the current prime minister, is not uh, fulfilling all his promises, I think he still enjoys, you know, uh, a lot of support in the electorate. Uh, it's hard to see. Uh, myself, I think uh, the leader of the Conservative Party will have a very, very uh, challenging job of mounting a credible alternative uh, and uh, mount really uh, a credible opposition for the, the coming election in 2019. So, Pierre, do you not think this is a perfect strategy then? You bow out now, you go take a high-profile job somewhere in, you know, in international waters, you uh, come back after a couple of years after Trudeau mania has worn off, and go from there. Could you see that happening? Well, I could, I could see it. Uh, it's not... Uh, if we see all the very strong ministers around uh, Stephen Harper, like uh, John Baird, uh, Mr. Kenny, uh, uh, Mr. McKay, uh, they did not run. They simply stepped out of federal politics. They say that they are happy in their new life. But uh, once you've been a politician, it's really hard you know, to, uh, to get away and to say never, never, uh, especially at a young age. You know, she's... Um, 
uh, women uh, with obvious uh, qualities and uh, competence. Uh, she has the experience. She's young. So I would not rule out, you know, that eventually, you know, she may return. And as you mentioned, all of those people could end up returning at one point to run against her. You never know. Uh, she talked about changing the tone of the party. That was obviously uh, the mantra after the Conservatives lost the last election. Uh, wanted a more warm and fuzzy, uh, less cold and calculating sort of government. Have they, or did she change the tone of the party? I think she did. I would say uh, <clears throat> there was a bit of a uh, rough edge, you know, at the end of the um, Harper years. Uh, the ideo- ideology was really always present, and uh, in terms of communicating their policy positions, you know, I think uh, there was a lack, and obviously, you know, they showed in the results of the last election. Um, it was very difficult for her, you know, at first, you know, to take over a, a party and uh, to develop a very credible and articulate uh, opposition that would not be too ideological. And I think she uh, she was faithful, you know, to the core values of uh, the Conservative Party, you know, like uh, um, always having the taxpayers' interests in mind, uh, always... Um, being prudent and uh, act with uh, property. And I think she, she was a, a moderate but a, an effective uh, leader of the opposition given the circumstances and given the context. Uh, what do you think, how do you think the party feels with her leaving? Well, if you look at the slate of candidates uh, running for the Conservative Party, uh, I think if I were a die-hard conservative, I would feel uh, a bit sad. I would hmm. feel, uh, I would say, a bit apprehensive of the uh, immediate future uh, because I think, you know, um, she shined compared, you know, to all the, in my views, all the uh, the candidates running for, for leadership. You know, many of the um, candidates I've taken, you know, really what I would see, extreme right-wing positions on a number of issues. And this does not go very well, you know, with uh, a very significant portion of the Canadian electorate. Um, many have attempted, you know, to use uh, Donald Trump's uh, strategy and position on a number of position, on policy issues. Uh, and I think it's going to, to come and haunt uh, them. Uh, if we look at Mr. Bernier, for instance, who appears to be one of the uh, very strong contender, um, he's a bit of a liber- libertarian, and uh, those views, you know, are not espoused, you know, by a majority of Canadians. So uh, the Conservative Party, you know, could could still run, you know, on a very credible conservative platform, but they have to be uh, mindful that um, the electorate is uh, more centrist, uh, centrist left in Canada. So I think if I were a, a die-hard conservative, I would feel, you know, a, a bit of a loss, a very significant loss, you know, with her departure. Uh, do you think her party gave her enough credit when credit was due? Well, she was always in the shadow of uh, Mr. Harper. In fact, you know, they were probably just a couple of, uh, of ministers who had the, the limelight, the spotlight, you know, uh, Mr. Uh, Flaherty. Uh, was one of them. Uh, John Bird was uh, the other one, and to some extent, you know, Mr. Kenny. Um, she was portrayed during the 
Harper years as a very competent, uh, very solid uh, cabinet minister, but she was a team player and she wasn't the shadow of the prime minister. Uh, I think she rose to the challenge and she revealed herself more as the interim leader of the official opposition. Uh, going off to work uh, in a think tank, uh, is the world her oyster right now, considering her experience? Well, I think you know many many politicians leave and they uh, they go into consulting or law firms. Uh, that may be uh, like a holding position, you know, to to see what goes on. And if they are interested in coming back, you know, they may jump uh, back into the fray. Uh, or if they decide to leave uh, politics for good, in this case, you know, she's leaving politics, obviously, uh, that may be a holding position to see uh, what her uh, future options are. Um, it's as good as any. Uh, you maintain your contacts. You um, have time to reflect on what goes on. Uh, you may be able you know, to develop your own views uh, for the future. Uh, and if there's an opportunity to to come back, you know, this is uh, uh, a springboard that you can use to come back into active politics. Pierre Martel has been with us, Professor of Political Studies, University of Ottawa. Pierre, thank you very much for the time. Much appreciated. Thank you. You're welcome. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. Donald Trump. I guess his uh, his uh, security, national security advisor said uh, the other day that uh, don't worry about the meetings uh, that are going on between uh, the Russian foreign minister and the Russian ambassador. Uh, nothing to see here. I was there for the whole meeting. And, uh, you know, and then Trump tweets and said, yeah, I got the right to do this. Once again, kind of uh, contradicting uh, what his uh, his people, his his White House is saying. Here's what H.R. McMaster had to say. He's a national security advisor yesterday. The president did not disclose any military operations that were not already publicly known. Two other senior officials who were present, including the secretary of state, remember the meeting the same way and have said so. Their on the record account should outweigh those of anonymous sources. And I, I was in the room. It didn't happen. All right. So then uh, Trump fires off a couple of tweets at seven o'clock this morning. Uh, As president, I wanted to share with Russia at an openly scheduled White House meeting, which I have the absolute right to do so, uh, facts pertaining. Uh, And then goes on to say to terrorism and airline safety, humanitarian reasons. Plus, I want Russia to play. uh, I want Russia to greatly step up their fight against ISIS and terrorism. Here's what McMaster said after those tweets. No, I, I stand by my statement that I made yesterday. What I'm saying is really the premise of that article is false, that in any way the president had a conversation that was inappropriate or that resulted in any kind of lapse in in national security. And so I think the real issue, and and I think what I'd like to see really debated more, is that our national security has been put at risk by those violating confidentiality and those releasing information uh, to the press that could could be used, uh, connected with other information available uh, to, to make American citizens and others more vulnerable. Uh, let's bring in Michael Tobe, uh, former speechwriter for Stephen Harper, columnist, and is with us now. Hello, Michael. How are you today? I'm good, Scott. How are you doing? I'm doing very well. What are your thoughts on McMaster's comments here? Are people just picking on Trump here? No, I, I think he's probably stupefied. I mean, it's it's very hard to believe that he would come out last night 
and directly say one thing, then have to sort of backtrack and deal with things when uh, Donald Trump basically puts out two tweets, as you said, basically saying he had the right to discuss whatever he wanted with the Russians. Now, there's a whole issue of whether the information that he passed on to the Russians was either classified or was declassified, which a president of the United States is obviously allowed to do. If you listen to H.R. McMaster, he's basically saying that the information that Donald Trump discussed, which we know is about the Islamic State, but we don't know anything else pertaining to it, was not anything that would cause, you know, national security problems, it wasn't, uh, it wasn't classified information, et cetera, et cetera. At the same time, if you go back to the original Washington Post article and some of the comments that were made around that time, one of the anonymous sources, and again, you have to be careful when you quote from these people because you don't know what the motives are, you don't know what, what their agendas are, you have to sort of be a little bit cautious. But the person said, and I'm paraphrasing just to some extent, that the information that was discussed between Donald Trump and the Russians was something that hasn't even been brought forward or discussed directly with their allies. And we have to keep in mind that although Donald Trump wants to build a relationship with Russia, Vladimir Putin and Russia are not our allies, period, end of statement. You don't share information that could be quite sensitive and could potentially put people in harm's way, including the person, whoever he or she is, that gave the information in the first place, because you want to either boast or impress your, your Russian friends or, you know, blood, you know uh, the, the, the move towards creating allies, that you, we're going to be able to share information, we're going to be able to discuss affairs, things that matter to all of us, including the Islamic State, are going to be discussed in this room. Unfortunately, Donald Trump just doesn't seem to have a good grasp of how to create political relationships and if he wants to build new ones with a country that's had a very icy relationship with the United States, not just now, but for many decades, you don't give out sensitive information, even if it has been declassified. It's just not a good strategy. And no matter how you look at it, it just looks bad all around for Donald Trump. So yet again, after the whole episode in the shenanigans with the Lester Holt interview last week with NBC. Hmm. Now we have this the following week. Uh, McMaster referring to the bigger picture is the bigger issue here is who's leaking info. Is, sure. is this just a smokescreen? No, I think he's right. I mean, it is, it's important to find out who did this. I, I agree with that. I mean, clearly he's obviously saying he didn't do it. He's clearly saying that the president of the United States didn't do it. And I'm sure he's in alluding to the fact that whatever senior officials were in that room were not a part of it. I have read reports, and again, a lot of this is hearsay, and until it's all confirmed, we can't say very much at this stage, but I have read reports that there were low-level staffers who were also present at the meeting. And that would make sense. You know, when I worked in the prime minister's office, you had lots of senior advisors in the room, but you also had junior staffers to either take notes, mm -hmm. help out in certain ways, or just sort of give them a paper or two if they need something to read about or read, or read to uh, the crowd that they're speaking to. That makes a lot of sense. So you, you sort of have to wonder, well, if there were low-level staffers there, is it possible that one of them said something? And if so, did they say something that was accurate or inaccurate? The way H.R. McMaster is sounding, the information, yeah, he probably shouldn't have said anything, but it wasn't all that bad. The question is who is leaking it. 
And I think that is important. It's not a smokescreen at all. It's something that you have to resolve pretty quickly because you don't want to have a pattern of continual leaks coming from the White House, no matter if it's from a senior person or a junior member. How do you explain that? Uh, Why is this happening? There are a lot of people who are in the White House who were there in the previous administration, the Mm -hmm. Obama administration. So there are a lot of people who were sympathetic to Barack Obama who are still around. Now, I'm not suggesting that this has anything to do with Barack Obama or the Democratic Party basically trying to wheedle their way into this administration and just leak information out. What it means is that some of the people who are there are leftovers from an administration that that think and act very, very differently than the current administration does. That's why, for example, in countries like Canada, we clean house as much as we possibly can, with the exception of the bureaucrats. So political staffers, no matter whether it's in the prime minister's office, a minister's office, a a secretary's office, no matter where, you want them to be, if not completely loyal or party members, people that you trust, that you know, that you recognize, sort of think like you do. There'll be the odd exception here and there, but most people, say in Canada and the past Canadian governments, will use both the Harper government I was a part of and the current Trudeau government, would be party loyalists or people who are loyal to the cause. Unfortunately, with Donald Trump's administration, yes, the inner circle is loyal for the most part, but there are a lot of surrounding members who are not, mainly because there are thousands and thousands of positions that Donald Trump has still not filled to this day, or he and his staff have still not filled. For that reason, it leaves open these little windows, just a crack here and there, where information can be easily leaked out. But again, that's presuming, Scott, that it was a junior staffer who did it. That would be an easy way to do it. If this is a senior person who's doing it, which is not what most people are talking about, but obviously is still a possibility, that would be a much bigger story, and that would be a much bigger threat to the operations, or the day-to-day operations anyways, of the Trump White House. So uh, shouldn't they be able to control that, or is it impossible, or do they need to clean house? Well, it's pretty hard to control what everybody does at every moment in time. I mean, people have work to do, and it doesn't matter what their party membership was, it doesn't matter who brought them in, or it doesn't even matter what they're doing at a specific hour of time. There is a job to do, and everybody has their own individual jobs, and they're supposed to be doing their work, whatever it entails. So no, I think that it's very, very difficult to ensure that these things, that everybody is sort of doing the right thing, that all the I's are dotted, all the T's are crossed, and they're doing what they're supposed to be doing. That's why leaks tend to happen more often now than, say, they did decades ago. And it's not just simply because of social media and the easy transformation or basically the sharing of information that we currently have. It's because, unfortunately, I just don't think people are willing to do things for the greater good of the country where they're really basically out for themselves more than anything else. Mm. And there are a lot of junior people who, quite frankly, may, even if they're conservatives, they may be frustrated by what they see on a regular basis at the Trump White House. They may be loyal Republicans and just look at a president who is neither a conservative nor a Republican in the modern or traditional sense of the word, are just stupid, you know, dumbfounded by the things that they see coming out of the White House on literally a daily basis, Scott. We're not just talking once every five days. It's literally every day we see something either crazy or good come out of this White House. 
it just must drive some people nuts. But how do you plug all the holes? There are so many holes to plug and so many to fill. You would need people watching over everyone, one person watching over every single staff member. That's impossible. You can't do that. So especially you when you've made it, it's not coming to that stage. Especially when you've made a lot of enemies along the way. Sure. Well, you're right. He's made a ton of enemies, absolutely, including within the Republican base that he's supposed to represent. You know, there are a lot of Republicans who remain frustrated with him. Yes, they're right when they say that roughly 90% of Republican Party members, that being people who either hold party membership cards or are loyal to the party or vote for the party on a regular basis, are content or happy with what Donald Trump is doing. That's absolutely true. But there is 10% that still are not happy, and we don't know where the 10% are. They could be sitting way out somewhere in South Dakota or Minnesota, or they could be sitting right in the fringes of of the White House. You just never know. Uh, Democrats asking to see transcripts of the meetings uh, or the meeting with the foreign minister and Russian ambassador. Will that ever come to fruition? It should, but I don't think it will. And I think it's simply because the Trump White House does not like to lose control of a narrative. So basically, they've... Wait a sec, wait a sec, Michael. Haven't they lost control of it already, though? Well, no, no, no. You're right. They have lost control of it. But what I mean is they don't want to lose further control. So in other words, they're losing the battle with the media. You're absolutely right. So if you're using just this as an instance, yes, this is completely nuts and it's awful to see. At the same time, if they gave the transcript over, that would be an even further creation of a narrative that really has gone away, and I don't know how you would actually be able to fix it. In the sense that if you have the transcript and you can go line by line, word by word, sentence by sentence in terms of what people said and did, that could actually ruin, well, it could ruin everything. It could ruin what Trump has tweeted out. It could ruin what McMaster has said. It could ruin what everybody says. I think that if they're going to hold on to anything, it has to be that. But who knows, if they give it up or if they're content with what they see and they don't redact a lot of these statements and they just give it out as is and it actually proves what, say, McMaster is saying and what Trump has tweeted out to some degree, well, then it's worth their while. But who knows what's there. Uh, Michael is and Michael Tobe is with us. Is this the media? Is is the media just picking on him? Are they treating him any differently than they would have any other president? What's your response? Well, I mean, they're not picking on him. I know a lot of people are angry with the media, and I understand that. For God's sake, Scott, I'm part of the media. I get angry with them. So Mm. we all understand the flaws that are in the media, but there's also good parts and aspects, too. And I think what really frustrates me is that the initial reaction, and you probably saw this too, but the initial reaction of most people when the Washington Post article was first released mentioning all this and discussing the fact that Trump had spoke to the Russians, my God, what did he say? You have an enormous percentage of people saying that this is awful, terrible, offensive. It adds to the, you know, the, the demonstrification that Trump has done in the White House. But then on the other hand, it, you have on the other side people actually directly saying that, well, do we really want to trust the Washington Post? This is a liberal newspaper. They're always against Trump. How can anything they say be other than fake news, which is everyone's favorite statement these days? That's the real problem right there and then, is that people, there are certainly people who trust the media, and I agree that recent reports are showing that that basically the trust the public has for the media has actually increased, at least in the United States anyways, by anywhere as low as 5% to as high as 10% because of the daily machinations they see in the Trump White House. 
But there are still a lot of people who don't trust the media, who feel that the media is just out to get Donald Trump no matter what. Are they being completely fair to every aspect of his leadership? And are they being completely fair to every single policy or executive order he proposes in the White House? Absolutely not. But much like politicians, the media also have their own agenda. And whether people like it or not, and that includes your local papers like the Hamilton Spectator and others, there's obviously certain news that they want to put out, and there's a particular spin they want to have. It's not just columnists like myself who do it. The news divisions do it as well. It's wrong. It's different than it was decades ago when papers, yeah, they had agendas, but at least they would report the news as hard news, exactly what right. the facts were, quotes, etc. But yeah, things have definitely changed a lot. But are they being unfair to Donald Trump? No, they're just being hard on him. But again, Donald Trump has made things hard on himself. So is he really that surprised that the media would come after him with all the cloaks and daggers that you can expect? Is there anything Donald Trump can do uh, to, uh, well, j- just to look less guilty? I mean, that's a hard thing for him to do. I mean, he probably, he himself, thinks that he's quite innocent. I think he basically feels that, well, I'm president. I can do anything. If I want to give out secrets, I'll do it. If I want to engage in late-night tweets, I don't give a damn what my staff says. I'll just keep doing it. Hmm. He basically thinks that he is invulnerable to some degree. And even if that's just a public facade and behind the scenes he knows privately that he's not, you know, he is vulnerable and he does make mistakes and there are problems that happen, you know, you occasionally hear stories, for example, of shouting matches going on in the White House between Trump and some of his senior advisors. So there's no doubt that there's frustration there. But to make himself look less guilty, the only way to do that is to ensure that everything is transparent, that he's being open about things, that the, that, the poll, that the stories don't suddenly change or the narrative doesn't change in two to three days or less when your staff is saying one thing and then you come out and say, nah, I'm going to say the opposite for whatever reason, either because that is actually what happened or he doesn't like the fact that his staff have not been handling relations with the media that strongly. So, and the other thing as well to briefly consider is that there are always going to be people who will feel that Donald Trump is guilty no matter what he does. Mm. Even when he's innocent, he'll be regarded as guilty. So how do you get away from that exactly? I don't think it's possible. You just have to do what you're doing right now and hope that your loyal supporters stay with you. I hope there is somebody inside the White House documenting all of this. I'm sure somebody is, and that's the sad thing. I think someone probably is. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see that when uh, you know, and to see how history reflects on on all of this. Uh, Michael, I cannot let you go without asking you your thoughts on Ronna Ambrose stepping aside. Uh, will we see her back in politics? Do you think? It's a good question. I don't know. I think she's basically gone as far up the ladder as she possibly could. I think she was a very good interim leader. I think she did better in that role than a lot of us expected. She was very solid in terms of her leadership. She asked some penetrating questions in the House of Commons, and she put a positive spin on a party that had, you know, had won three straight elections and had lost to Justin Trudeau in 2015. Very hard role to fill, even though you know it was, you knew it was a temporary role. But Rona Ambrose, who had a very rocky start in politics, as people may remember, as the environment minister way back in 2006, yeah. came very, very close to being, you know, losing her cabinet post and everything. 
she really rebuilt her career. No one ever questioned her intelligence and her ability, Scott. We just thought at the time, I think a lot of us did, 06, 07, 08, that she just didn't, wasn't handling herself brilliantly in front of the camera. But she got better, she got more confident in her role, and the party gained more confidence in her. And to her credit, she was a very good interim leader. She can hold her head up very high when she moves on to the Wilson Center and does different things in her private life. I don't know if she'll ever come back to politics because I don't know if the leadership necessarily will be open to her other than on an interim basis. But I hope she does sort of keep her, keep her face around, looks to, you know, looks to Canada as much as she possibly can, and is more than happy and willing to quote and comment about Canadian politics because she has been an asset to this party. And good for her, and congratulations to her on a long career and a successful one. That's all that matters. Uh, sounds, and I, I, I don't mean, this is just my interpretation, that perhaps mm-hmm. uh, the party elite isn't uh, as thrilled with her as most might think. Uh, do you think the public has a different perception of her than the party does? Well, the party elites, obviously, and sadly, I'm probably in there. We just remember what happened in the past, but the past, the past, and the present is is the present. And right now, she has really improved her standing over the past 10 years. I can't say anything otherwise, and I'm sure most people would. I think that a lot of the party elders have also grown to like her. They like her style. They like the fact that she uses social media successfully. They like the fact that she's young, that she's been able to sort of build bridges with, say, a lot of women who may have been right-leaning but were sort of uncomfortable with other conservative policies. She put a fresh face and a good spin on the party, and I think a lot of us owe her for that. And, yeah, the party membership may look at her differently than the elites do. I have no doubt of that. Many of the party elders probably have their own opinions that may be the same as mine or dissimilar to mine. But no matter how you look at it, overall, Rona Ambrose did in my opinion, much better than expected in a role that she knew was going to be temporary and that she would have to leave at some point because of the party constitution, which forbids anyone who takes the interim leadership to then eventually run for the permanent leadership of the party. But again, hats off to her. She's done extremely well. She can hold her head up high. She was a very successful interim leader, and that's, to me, what really counts, Scott. Michael Tobe has been with us, columnist and former speechwriter for Stephen Harper. Michael, as always, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. My pleasure, Scott. Have a great day. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. All right, let's bring in David Harris and Cigna Strategic Group. He's a terrorism expert. So much to talk to him. I'm going to talk to him about uh, North Korea and their link to the cyber attack, but of course can't have him on without asking about uh, the latest revelations coming out of the United States on any given day, I guess. Uh, David Harris is with us now in Cygnus Strategic Group, terrorism expert. Hello, David. How are you today? Hey, fine, thanks, Scott. Uh, how about you? I'm doing very well. Thank you for taking the time to join us. We always appreciate this. Uh, before we get into the North Korean scenario, uh, your thoughts on what's happening with Donald Trump uh, and uh, this time with uh, his national security advisor, H.R. Uh, McMaster. Uh, he was quoted yesterday as saying that... Uh, Nothing to see here, folks. Uh, The meeting that happened between uh, the Russian foreign minister and the Russian ambassador and Trump was uh, nothing was said that shouldn't have been said. 
And then basically, of course, uh, Donald Trump tweets that uh, as president, I wanted to share with Russia at an openly scheduled White House meeting, which I have the absolute right to do so, uh, facts pertaining to terrorism and airline flight safety, humanitarian reasons, plus I want Russia to greatly step up their fight against ISIS and terrorism. And then, of course, McMaster uh, came back on and, and, and I guess tried to qualify that. What are your thoughts? Well, I think it may be possible to reconcile the two claims, the presidents and uh, masters. Uh, it's always very, very difficult. The president, as he says, uh, has a legal right to, uh, in effect, declassify anything he might feel appropriate to be declassified in the American interest. Um, and uh, it may just be that some people are taking a different view of the level of sensitivity of certain things. Uh, one one issue that is enormously complicating this kind of situation and understanding it is that the media in the United States and elsewhere has become so partisan that uh, to find the outlet one's talking about in breaking these kinds of stories is to really find the conclusion one is inevitably going to reach on the uh, merits or otherwise of whatever's been done. In this case, it was the Washington Post that broke the original story. And uh, the Washington Post, like the New York Times, has been uh, really quite vividly anti-Trump all the way along. So that when you read the Washington Post's original story, what you quickly notice is something that is something of a familiar pattern, namely the reliance not merely on uh, anonymous sources, which may raise their own ethical issues or questions, but perhaps as much to the point, anonymous sources that were said to have been associated uh, as senior officials with the previous administration, which, as we know, is mm -hmm. and has been generally at daggers drawn with the current administration. And one doesn't have to get into the merits of who may or may not be right in general in these kinds of uh, struggles and squabbles. But uh, once you see a former administration, you know, you begin to wonder whether these people are not being relied on simply to fight a continuing political battle against Trump. Um, at the same time, one has seen how voluble the president can be, and at times one has even noted a certain unguarded nature in these things. So anything's possible, but in the end, the great tragedy of partisanship is that we are rendered none the wiser in many really important national security realms. Hmm. So are the Democrats making hay, or the Democrats and anyone else on the left, making hay out of nothing? Uh, do we need to see transcripts of these meetings? Well, maybe they are and maybe they're not. That's part of the great difficulty. You start to lose that sense of a baseline hmm. of, of truth and accuracy. And um, Trump seems to encourage that, though, uh, David. How does that play in his favor? Because now everybody's right. questioning him and whether he's guilty or not. He's acting guilty. Well, the uh, issue of impulse is, of course, a major one, and uh, any number of uh, Mr. Trump's detractors with some reason have pointed to what has appeared to be at times an impulse control problem, and that, correctly or otherwise, will lend credence to the kinds of themes and memes that uh, those, I guess, sympathetic to the Democratic Party side or at least the anti-Trump side uh, will be able uh, to latch onto. So, uh, yes, it's, uh, it's in some ways uh, an issue where one 
as president can create one's own vulnerabilities, and maybe that's what's happening. But as I say, in the end, it's not helpful to the rest of us in trying to understand what exactly is going on and therefore what the ultimate objective national security position of the United States might be. Uh, how are Americans supposed to wade through all of this? You know, as you mentioned, a land of extremes. How do they decipher what's real and what isn't? Well, uh, again, I guess they are constrained to do what the rest of us are uh, reduced to doing, which is what in many ways we do in our daily lives. I mean, if we are uh, in a situation, a business situation, uh, we're looking for advice, we quite readily and automatically try to assess whatever advice we're getting in the context of the biases that we may attribute to whomever is providing the advice. Um, do they have a vested interest in the direction in which they're analytically taking us? Uh, that's the kind of thing I guess they've got to do. Uh, but it, it is worrying that uh, some of the media in the States especially uh, have come down the way they have done, where you find one group essentially finding that the president can do no wrong and another group uh, determined it seems to mm. demonize him. Um, and what do allies, as you uh, have anticipated, do with at least some of these issues. It was interesting that the former CIA director, and I guess Defense Secretary Robert Gates, was in many ways supporting some of the more abrupt tendencies or stratagems that President Trump may be considered to have been using, because these can, of course, be as disorienting for enemies as for anyone else and uh, rendering it harder to anticipate what exactly uh, the president and administration might be doing, in contrast and contradistinction to what we saw in the Obama administration, where in so many ways that administration's foreign policy fell apart and really reinforced and emboldened mm. any number of international uh, adversaries. So uh, it remains to be seen, though, what the ultimate outcome will be, and uh, disorienting even enemies can have its dangers, because as we know from experience, uh, they may miscalculate those enemies and in ways that uh, may not uh, profit everyone. All right. With that, let's go lead into North Korea. Is the leader of North Korea inflaming the leader of the United States, or is it the other way around? Well, I think um, if we bear in mind that the, one of the individuals most resistant to any kind of escalation, let alone escalation hinting at military affairs, was President Obama. And it appears to have been President Obama who, some might even say, despite the clear menace of the uh, leading uh, terrorist-backing uh, country, Iran, uh, pointed to North Korea as really the, in his view, preeminent threat. Not an unreasonable conclusion, uh, but uh, still noteworthy. And he, Obama, has widely been reported to have said to uh, President Trump during early briefings that North Korea will be your primary threat and preoccupation on the international security level. So in a sense, we see uh, an interestingly, almost surprisingly consistent theme and thread from the Obama administration, especially in its latter phase, into the current Trump administration and its focus on North Korea. Um, that's quite a fascinating little route to uh, contemplate. And uh, in the past, as we saw back in, I think, the 90s with the uh, administration of President Bill Clinton, the 
North Koreans have been almost completely resistant to any kinds of uh, sensible overtures, guarantees, and so on. In fact, we, uh, if you remember, noted that it was uh, after an agreement that had been soberly organized between the United States and North Korea to the effect that the North agreed to uh, give up on its uh, nuclear research in exchange for all kinds of fuel and other supplies in consideration from the U.S. and West. Uh, that amounted, in the end, to uh, the United States unilaterally having reinforced this dreadful regime and uh, the North having gone ahead in any case with mm. its nuclear plan. So now we are facing what some hypothesize is a, a country with perhaps as many as 30 or 40 nuclear weapons. And as we saw, reinforced on, I think it was Sunday, yet another missile test, but this yeah. one involving somewhat greater range, and it appears more reliability than the past Musadan-type uh, missiles, bringing nearer the day when uh, we would expect that uh, North Korea's uh, ICBM-based nuclear weapons could reach the east coast of Can west coast of Canada and the United States and farther. So, uh, so obviously we should have been paying a, cl a lot closer attention to North Korea in in the previous years, as opposed to just all of a sudden realizing now that they're an issue. Uh, where is China in all of this? Why are they not capping this? Why are they not keeping him under wraps? Well, you're so right to have uh, brought China into full focus because when you look back a very great deal of the restraints uh, that the West, and the U.S. particularly, has demonstrated with regard to North Korea has derived from the explicit or implicit assurances that China seemed to have given or represented when it came to keeping North Korea under control. So uh, we tended to recognize there was probably only so much that the West could do, especially in anything like military terms, and so containment appeared to be the order of the day. And we would, in sitting back, say to ourselves, well, of course, China will keep control of them. Well, now, of course, too, as so many people had predicted, we've seen nothing but gradual advances in these most hideous of technologies, all the more hideous in the hands of the kind of dictatorship represented by North Korea, without, apparently, China, having made any material and significant contribution to restraining them, now we find in the ultimate situation that uh, it appears that, that North Koreans, in their, in their missile tests and otherwise, have actually uh, proceeded in the face of Chinese uh, explicit objections. So now where does that leave us? Uh, it's an extremely difficult situation. The Trump administration felt constrained because of the trends we've seen to put those fad missiles into place uh, in order to shoot down any uh, offensive uh, North Korean missiles. And that upset the Chinese uh, because, uh, of course, it could limit uh, uh, the deterrent approach as generally understood. But again, what now is China actually prepared to do? So is China is China using North Korea as a distraction? Uh, you know, let them get a little out of a hand and we'll see where this goes and, and manage the situation from that viewpoint? That's uh, one theory, or at least it has been in the past. But now that uh, North Korea seems to have been exceeding its bounds in Chinese terms uh, to the extent that it has, 
it, it seems less and less plausible. Uh, the genie may be easing out of the bottle, uh, even in Chinese terms. In the- so if China can't control North Korea, who can? Well, and there is the question, right? And we uh, so often, by our conditioning, expect that there's always a solution, and ordinarily a reasonable solution, to a problem. Uh, the unease now stems from the possibility that there may be no ready civil solution available, and hence we see the uh, Trump administration constrained in some ways to essentially say uh, to North Korea, look, you know, pull back, while at the same time, and this has been an interesting late feature, at the same time, time trying to signal that regime change is not on Washington's mind. Right. Because the last thing they want is an even more desperate hmm. regime armed with nuclear weapons and ICBMs than they already have. So, obviously, uh, fast forward to a uh, cyber attack now being traced uh, back to North Korea, some say. Uh, is North Korea behind this attack or the scapegoat of the day? We uh, just cannot know for sure, and it's part of the frustrating and rather dangerous uh, element we're looking at in this kind of thing. The the key word is attribution, and to whom may you attribute this kind of threat, the uh, attack itself. Um, it's There's some fairly recent news that has the focus on uh, an entity called the Lazarus Group, which you uh, may recall was connected uh, to the famous 2014 Sony Pictures cyber attack that cost Sony uh, dearly and demonstrated a a very, very lethal kind of capacity, in the very least in economic terms, of uh, cyber against uh, corporations and uh, broader, more sensitive targets even than that. Um, But some of the investigation, according again to reports, is that uh, there may have been some code used in the uh, recent attack that uh, may have resembled uh, code used in the Sony Pictures attack. And uh, so because the Sony Pictures attack was originally attributed to uh, North Korean sources, that then raises this question. But you can get into issues of deception, where a third party, right. maybe a government, maybe sure. criminals. They right? make it look that way, yeah. That's it. Uh, so would ch- does China have the ability to uh, pull the plug on North Korea's Internet? Uh, it's very, very difficult to say. They've got a prodigious uh, cyber capacity, which we're learning to our grief repeatedly. Maybe they're able to play some games on that. One would assume that they could have some capacity, and indeed that the uh, United States and others might. But is it comprehensive enough, particularly given the uh, kinetic threats now in development, missiles, nuclear weapons, and so on, and the different ways of delivering those things beyond missilery? Uh, It's part of the great challenge we're going to be facing, and uh, it, it remains to just be observed, and I don't know how much one can reasonably make of this, that uh, in recent weeks there had been a build-up of uh, Chinese military forces on the uh, North Korean border. Uh, That may or may not be significant. It may have been designed to send a message to North Korea or to the world, including the United States, that China was on the case and that therefore the U.S. could back off a bit, particularly with regard to U.S. presence in the Pacific. Um, One thing that was pointed out by some was that armored units were uh, fairly heavily represented among the Chinese forces, and those units are often associated with great uh, long-range penetration movements. Mm-hmm. So raising in some minds the possibility that maybe the Chinese would be willing to take some sort of serious military action 
if indicated. But again, it is hard to believe that uh, China would be in a hurry. They're worried. That was China not part of the attack, though? Was China not also uh, vulnerable yes. to this as well? So, I mean, clearly there's no love loss between North Korea and China. And that's where the problem of attribution comes in. Yeah. It's hard to know what is overlapping where. Mm-hmm. And uh, that in some ways makes it all the more dangerous. David Harris has been with us, Insignia Strategic Group terrorism expert. David, is always fascinating discussion. Thank you for the time. Thanks, Scott. Take care. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML.